This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com. My name is Greg Lindsay. Uh, I am a pastoral resident here at Redemption Tempe. Uh, basically, a pastoral residency is, is somewhat like a doctoral residency. Uh, so that, that's how we explain it. With a doctoral residency, people who want to be doctors will go to a hospital, work underneath doctors, get hands-on experience. Much in the same way, that's the pastoral residency as well. So we get opportunities like this to preach. Uh, and so that, that's an exciting opportunity I get this morning to be with you guys. I'm also a, a volunteer coordinator here with Redemption Tempe. So I get the opportunity with that to serve alongside our, our wonderful volunteer team uh, and, and, and serve with them on Sundays. Um, so I'm excited to dive into the passage that uh, we're going to be working through today. Uh, we get the opportunity to work through, I think, some of the most exciting passages in Mark's gospel. Uh, and, and so we're going to be in Mark 6 today. If you have a Bible, would you go ahead and turn it to Mark chapter 6, verse 30? If you don't have a Bible, if you go ahead and raise your hand, one of our ushers coming down the aisle will uh, give you a Bible to use. If you don't have a Bible, you can keep this one. It's our gift to you. Uh, we believe that everybody should own a copy of God's word. <clears throat> so again, we're going to be in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. <clears throat> so in this passage today, uh, Mark records Jesus doing three extraordinary miracles. Uh, and, and through this, he's, he's trying to show us, similar to, to what he's trying to do through the whole gospel of Mark, one core truth. And that core truth is really important for us to understand and grasp as we enter into the text today. And that truth is that Jesus is God. That's, that's what Mark is trying to show us here in this gospel. It's what he's showing us through these, these three stories. Um, and, and this reminded me of how I came to faith. I didn't grow up in the church. Um, I, I never disbelieved in God. I always thought that there was a God, but I, I thought certainly he would be way too uh, huge for, for any one person to know uh, truth about him. And, and in high school, I had friends who had said that they were Christians, but they were going and doing all the horrible same things that I was. They, they um, said one thing, and they hypocritically lived in a completely different fashion, didn't even try. Uh, and so that kind of tarnished, at the time, what I thought this thing called Christianity was. When I entered into college, I joined a fraternity uh, and, and was on the leadership team there. And there was another guy on our leadership team who I remember from very early on, he said, hey guys, just so you know, uh, I'm a Christian uh, and that means that, that I love Jesus. And so that, that means that I wanna live for him. And so if, if, we, if you guys ever go out and, and I stay home or if we're at a party and I don't drink, I'm not judging you, I'm not looking down on you. This is just how I wanna live my life. If you ever wanna learn more about that, I'd love to talk to you about it. And the crazy thing about him was it was different because he, he showed me uh, Christ by, by how he lived, by how he loved, and by the actions that, that he did. He wasn't perfect. He, he messed up like we all did. But, but there was something different about him. And that intrigued me. And that snowballed into eventually me coming to know the Lord. That's similar and why the Gospel of Mark was so foundational for me as a new believer. The, the Gospel of Mark... Uh, focuses on a specific part of Jesus here. So, so in the Gospel of John, for example, we see in John's Gospel, Jesus saying that, that he's the Son of God. All magnificent truths, important, but in Mark's Gospel, uh, he's showing us that Jesus is God. 
So uh, these miracles that, that we're going to see today can't just be explained away as some uh, natural uh, thing that, that Jesus did, but, but these are exactly what, we just, what I just said, miracles. And again, they show us that Jesus is God. But I do think that there are three implications that we can pull out of these three stories that we're going to look at today. And those are the three points. Uh, so if you're a note taker, you can, you can write these down. We're going to see that, that Christ provides abundantly. That Christ is with us in the storm. And that Christ makes us whole. So we're going to go ahead and jump into the text. But, but before we do that, if you'd bow your head and pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to enter your word and to meet you. I pray, God, that through this text today, you would, you would show us the magnitude of exactly who you are. That our hearts would feel awe at the, the depth of the truth that you are the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Pray that you'd be with us uh, in our time together today and that you would bless um, this time. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, three stories, you might be familiar with, uh, with them. We're going to see that Jesus feeds the 5,000, that he walks on the water, and, and that he heals some people in Gennesaret. Uh, the stories start in, in verse 31. So I, I want to start there, if you guys would meet me again in Mark 6, uh, verse 31. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when, he, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. So this passage starts, uh, if you remember last week, Ricardo, we left off, uh, Ricardo was talking about how Jesus had sent out the disciples on their first uh, missionary journey, two by two, and he gives them authority to cast out demons and to heal. And so they're returning from this trip to Jesus, and they're tired, um, they're hungry, and Jesus sees this, he recognizes their need for, for rest and for time with him, so he says, let's go to, to a desolate place. So they launch off in a boat, and they're, they're headed to this, uh, this desolate place, but a crowd intercepts them. A crowd sees them on the boat, they recognize Jesus, and they get to where Jesus' boat is headed, before they show up. This is a big deal because the Sea of Galilee is huge. It's eight miles wide, 13 miles long, 33 miles around. Some estimate that, that this crowd, some would have traveled eight to 10 miles to, to meet up with Jesus. I can barely one, run one mile, and these guys ran eight to 10. This shows that the crowd is desperate to be with Jesus, even if it's not for the right reasons. So it says, Jesus gets out of the boat and he sees them. He has compassion on them. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He begins to teach them. And sheep without a shepherd are defenseless and directionless. But imagine how the disciples must have felt at this point. They're coming back from this missionary journey. I'm sure they saw crazy things while they were out. 
casting out demons and healing. And they step off this boat and they see a crowd waiting for them and Jesus starts to teach them. I, I imagine at that point, they, they just lost all hope. What, what is going on? They, they were tired, they were hungry, maybe even hangry. They just wanted to rest. So Jesus starts to teach them and an interesting exchange occurs here. The, the disciples see that it's growing late. They notice that the crowd is hungry. And so they, they tell Jesus, Jesus to send them away so that they can get food. They don't have enough food with them here. They're in the middle of nowhere. This seems like a, a pretty uh, normal request or something that, that makes sense. They're seeing a potentially mounting epic problem. These people need to be fed. But Jesus replies to them, you give them something to eat. The disciples are like, what? What is he talking about? And so the disciples reply, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So I'm not sure if your sarcasm meter is, is here, but they're being sarcastic here. They're basically saying, uh, it would be like us to, today saying, okay, so Jesus, you want us to basically uh, get seven months of wages of, of my job and then go out and spend it all on food on this crowd. It's not going to happen. We don't have those kind of resources. But Jesus uh, responds to them and he says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So uh, pause on this story. If, if we look back in the Old Testament, are there times where there are similar examples of, of this sort of exchange? Yes. Actually, uh, back in Numbers 11, Moses is leading uh, 600,000 Israelites in the desert, similarly in the middle of nowhere. God's been sending down manna or bread from heaven for them to eat, but the people are starting to grumble. They're, they're saying, ah, I, don't, I don't want this bread anymore. I want some meat. And so God says to Moses, I'm going to give them meat. And Moses is like, there's 600,000 people here, God. You're going to send meat? He replies to God, uh, would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? He's saying, God, we don't have the resources. We're in the middle of nowhere. But God made a promise. And, and so he responds to Moses saying, is the Lord's arm too short? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So he says, Moses, I'm inviting you to trust me here. I'm going to move. So, so back in our story with the disciples, as we, as humans, often have a propensity to do, the disciples are focusing on what they lack. But Jesus is focusing on what they possess. Jesus is, is promising them uh, that, that a miracle is going to happen. He's going to provide for these people. Jesus sees possibilities here where his disciples see impossibilities. God can multiply even the smallest gifts if they're made available to him. In the hands of Jesus, little is always much. We may think we have little talent or substance to give to him. However, the, the wrong thing to say in a moment like this is, well, I don't have enough to do everything, so I might as well do nothing. These are the same disciples who just returned from a missionary trip and cast out demons and healed people. And now they're doubting that Jesus is going to be able to, to, to do this. They're asking, how, Jesus? How are we going to do that? But the point here is that if we put ourselves in the hands of Jesus, there's no telling what he will do uh, to and through us. So the story continues in verse 39. It says, 
Then he, command, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So a commendable thing about the disciples here, even though they had no idea what Jesus was doing, he instructs them to act, and they act. They, they put people into groups. They tell Jesus what they do have. They distribute this food after Jesus breaks it and blesses it. But I really think this story of feeding the 5,000 hinges on this one sentence in verse 42. It says, and they all ate and were satisfied, full, satiated. The bread of Jesus satisfies because it's, it's an expression of his compassion. It's not just a snack that, that was given for them to, to sustain them to a later meal. It says they were full and they were satisfied. Here we see that Jesus does what only God can do. He creates food to meet the needs of the crowd in abundance. And therefore, our first implication for today of Jesus being the Son of God is that Christ provides abundantly. Now, Jesus used food and drink uh, a lot in his ministry to show his love and his compassion to people. We see that at the woman at the well. Uh, we even see it at the, the, fast, the Passover meal where he gives uh, the bread and the wine. And I think that's because uh, a food and drink in general is, is a great way to show people that, that you love them, uh, especially for a guy like me that loves food. So I remember when I was in college, uh, especially my freshman year, I'm sure no one else experienced this, but I ate horribly. Um, a, a gourmet meal for me was, was like ramen and tuna, which don't knock it till you try it. Uh, <laughs> But I, I mean, that's like not a five-course meal, right? And what I looked forward to every year was going home to my mom's Thanksgiving meal. She made the best sweet potatoes, uh, baked potatoes, cranberry sauce, the pies, the cookies, the turkey. Everything about that meal was amazing. And when I ate that meal, I knew I'm home, I'm loved, I'm cared for. And I'd be there that weekend living off all of those leftovers, and I knew at the end of the weekend there was going to be abundance of leftovers, and I was going to leave with three grocery bags full of leftover food to sustain me through finals. And I think uh, there, there's a parallel there. This is, Jesus is providing this crowd food that sustains, uh, that, that makes them whole. They all ate and were satisfied. So the story continues here into one of my favorite events of Mark's whole gospel uh, in verse 45. So you can pick up with me there. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So Jesus dismisses the crowd. He, he sends his disciples away on a boat and, and he goes into the mountain by himself to pray. Now Mark records Jesus praying at only three points in his ministry. It's safe to assume he prayed a lot, but 
Mark's point here in his gospel, he records three specific instances. In Mark 1, uh, here in Mark 6, and then in Mark 14, uh, before the cross. Each of these uh, prayers, Jesus, it's at night. Jesus is alone in a lonely place, and his disciples are removed from him, not fully understanding his mission. And in each of these three cases, Jesus is facing a formative decision or a crisis. Meanwhile, in verse 48, we see that the the disciples are stuck trying to cross this this lake. They're rowing and rowing, and the wind is against them, and they're not making any headway. Uh, Some accounts would say that they had been rowing for probably in the ballpark of six to eight hours. Now, I can barely row, similarly like I can barely run a mile, I can barely row for 30 minutes. These guys are doing it for six to eight hours. The wind is against them, they're not getting anywhere. And so Jesus sees them, he notices them, and so it says he walks on the water of the lake intending to pass them by. But the disciples are afraid, and so Jesus responds, take heart, it is I. In walking here on the water toward the disciples, Jesus walks where only God can walk. It's similar to him forgiving sins earlier in Mark 2, and in his power over nature the last time they were in a boat on the water and he calms the storm. Walking on the lake identifies Jesus unmistakably with God. This identification is reinforced when Jesus says, take heart, it is I. Now, if there's, we'll do a little bit of, of uh, uh, couch Greek here, armchair Greek. If there's one phrase in Greek uh, that, that you can really hold in your heart, it's, it's what Jesus says here when he says, it is I. And that's the Greek phrase, ego eimi, it is I. This is a really important phrase. It's the same phrase that that God uses to identify himself to Moses in the burning bush. So Jesus is is not only walking where only God can walk, but but he's using uh, God's name to to identify himself to the disciples. And, And in the latter part of 48, it says he was about to pass them by, which seems perplexing. Now, if I'm on uh, the shore, and I can walk on water, and, and my friends are uh, struggling against the wind, I don't think my first instinct would be to pass them by, but I'm not Jesus. So it says Jesus passes them by. Seems perplexing. What, what is he doing here? But, but this passing by that Jesus is doing is actually one of the most intimate and obvious revelations of Jesus being God. And he's doing this for his disciples. In Exodus 33, uh, in the Old Testament, Moses is on Mount Sinai and he says, God, show me your face. And God says, I can't show you my face, but I can pass by you and you can see my back. And he does. He, he reveals his glory to Moses by passing by him. Similarly, in 1 Kings on Mount Horeb, God passed by Elijah to reveal his presence. But the big one uh, is found in Job 9. Job is describing God. He says, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. This phrase here, treads on the waves of the sea, is the same wording that we find here in Mark, where Jesus passes by the disciples. The Job passage recounts the awesome separation between God and humanity. God can do what humanity cannot do. His wisdom is beyond compare. He gives food in due season. He moves mountains, and he treads on the waves of the sea. 
God, as described by Job, is holy God, holy other. And he can't be confused with a human being. But when Jesus passes by the disciples here, he does something different than God does in the Old Testament. He makes the unseeable God of Job, Moses, and Elijah seeable, as had never been nor could have been in the days of former generations. The God of Israel, majestic and awesome, but previously unknowable face to face, is now passing by the disciples in the person of Jesus Christ. When, when Jesus passes by the disciples, uh, he's, he's, he's exclaiming, I am God. So uh, Jesus gets in the boat and the wind stops and it says the disciples are utterly astounded. So the storms pick up uh, when the disciples are away from Jesus and, and they subside when they're with them. And so we see here that being with Jesus is not some theoretical truth, but, but it has practical uh, consequences for these disciples. If separation brings distress, then Jesus' presence with them overcomes the storms in their life. It brings peace and calm. There's comfort in knowing that, that even though we can't see Jesus, uh, that, that he sees us and he's with us. It's, it's similar to Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, who appears from over the sea without warning, but exactly when needed. We see there, it says, Aslan was among them, though no one had seen him coming. Although there's a, there's a troubling element in this story, and that is the disciples' reaction to Jesus. They don't recognize him. They, they think he's a, they confuse him for a ghost. They're more fri- frightened by his presence than his absence. He tries to reassure them by making himself known in his glory and power, but it fails to calm their hearts. Instead, they're frightened and confused. Often Christ might pass us by in our lives in ways that, that we fail to see and might even frighten us. How do we see him while we struggle in the dim hours of the night, in the darkness of our struggles? It may only become clear in retrospect as it did for these first disciples, but we later realize that, that in, the horrible, in that horrible hour, we were in the very presence of God and that Christ revealed his glory to us, but we were too blind or petrified to see We should be aware and alert that that in times of discouragement and our greatest fears, Christ is passing us by, showing his love and his power and leading us through troubled waters. So we see point number two for today, that Christ is with us in the storms. So I had two strong male figures growing up. My, My mom and dad divorced when I was in first grade and they both remarried. So I had my dad, who was uh, a man's man. We'd go hunting and camping and fishing, and we'd make things uh, out of wood with our hands. And a story about him, when he told me when he was in his early 20s, him and his friends, would uh, they bought a trailer home and put it on the the shore of this lake in Oklahoma, and they lived off the land for two years. Uh, No power, no running water. Uh, It's about as hipster as you can get, I think. (laughs) On the other side, my stepdad, worked and retired from the NSA. So you can't tell anybody that I just told you that. Uh, But he did presidential security. And uh, fun fact about him, if you've ever seen the footage of the failed assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan, uh, they're outside of this uh, office building, glass doors. Just inside those glass doors, my stepdad was right there. And so I was like, come on, man, what are you doing? (laughs) But... Inevitably, uh, as it does in life, the, the, the storms of this life hit. 
A couple years ago, my wife and I, Michelle, got married, uh, and I noticed that my dad was struggling to, to get around, to walk. And so I asked him, what's going on? And he told me that, that he had been in extreme pain lately, and he didn't know why, and to the point where his legs would just give out. And he didn't know what, what was going on, but he was just falling. And there was no rhyme or reason, uh, and he, he had no idea what was going on. So he went to the doctor, and, um, and, and the doctor uh, told him, this is actually something that you were born with. It's called uh, spinal stenosis. And that's basically in our, in our backs, the vertebrae, they have holes. That's where the nerves go. Well, the holes of his vertebrae were smaller, and they would essentially short out his nerves, and, and he would fall without warning. And the doctor had said, uh, it's not good news. If there is a surgery, uh, but it's very long, it's very invasive, and, and you probably won't survive it. My dad had had a heart attack a few years before that, and so his chances for surviving this, this surgery were slim to none. So we prayed, uh, and my dad ultimately decided not to have the surgery. And, and, and out of God's grace, a miracle happened. He, he is now, he's, his back has gotten better, his legs don't give out, we, don't, we have no idea why. The doctors are baffled, this shouldn't happen, but he's now able to get around most of the time without a cane. On the other side, my stepdad, about the same time, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And that hasn't gotten better, and it likely won't. So the, the storms of this life inevitably happen. There's a saying that, that you're likely either in a storm, you're just coming out of a storm, or, or you're about to go into a storm. But that's just the truth of living in a fallen world. But what this passage gives me, my dad, my stepdad, and all of us here today is hope. Even when we can't see him, Christ is present with us in the storms. He's with us. But there's one more story here that, that Mark is going to, to walk us through that gives us this full picture of exactly who we're dealing with in Jesus. So if you would, uh, read with me in verse 53. It says, When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So the, the group had been cast off. Jesus gets in the boat. The, the wind is calmed. They finally get to where they're trying to get to, this city called Gennesaret. And, and again, the crowd finds out where Jesus is, and they, they flock to him. And it says his reputation is spreading here. It says that uh, as many... Uh, that people gathered around him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now, this is a fitting conclusion to Jesus' ministry to the crowds, uh, because th that word at the end there, made well, could also be translated as made whole. So the compassion of Jesus has fed, satisfied, uh, and healed the crowds, but the blessings, blessings of his compassion raises the ultimate question whether those who experience them will enter further into Jesus' saving purpose. One theologian notes, in the zeal with which the people brought their sick to Jesus, we recognize not only how deeply the untiring goodness of Jesus touched Israel, but also how distant Israel remained from Jesus. 
because it sought from him nothing but the healing of the sick. The, the physical blessings of Jesus are not an end in themselves, but a fork in the road, one branch of which leads to Jesus' ultimate final saving purpose, and the other to a false understanding of Jesus as simply a wonder worker. We're left at this fork in the road, just as the people in Gennesaret and the disciples were. Is Jesus simply a miracle worker? Does he just want our wounds, our ailments? Or could it be that Jesus is showing us here exactly who he really is? That he wants more from us than just the wounds of this life? We've seen in this passage today that that Christ provides abundantly, that Christ is with us in the storms, and that Christ makes us whole. But these are nothing if they're on their own. They're nothing unless we realize that Jesus is God himself, fully human and fully God. He provides abundantly because he has power and authority over all things. He's with us in the storm because he utterly and deeply loves us. And this utter deep love manifested itself on the cross, which is how he makes us whole. It's all through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is walking on the water. The the meat of this passage today is a revelation of the glory that he shares with the Father and the compassion that he extends to his followers. It's a divine epiphany and answer to his disciples' earlier bafflement when he calmed the storm and they asked, who is this? What this passage shows us isn't just that Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people, walked on the water, and healed some people. These events weren't just a means to an end. These events all tie together to show us the magnitude of exactly who we're encountering here in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. It shows us that Christ is God and provides abundantly in only ways that God could provide. That Christ is God and can go where only God can go. Therefore, he's with us in the storm. That Christ is God and does what only God can do. So through, it's through faith in him that he makes us whole. So we can take comfort in the fact that the one who calmed the storm is the same one who appears in the midst of it. He has compassion for us, is with us, and will never abandon us. Take heart. It is I. There's hope in this life, and it's the I am in the midst of the storm. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, it could be so easy in this life to to get caught up in the storms, to be tossed to and fro, to forget who you are, to forget the blessings that that you've given us in this life. But in this passage today, God, you show us that you provide abundantly because you love us. Jesus, you show us that that you're with us in the storms and that you make us whole through faith in you. God, I pray that you would be with us in those storms, that we would see when you provide abundantly and that we would glorify you And that, God, we we would be able to rest in the fact that that you love us utterly and deeply. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.